0: Let's pray as we come to uh, spend time focusing on God's Word. Father, you're the God who made us, you know us, and you're the God who speaks for our good. So please help us now as we come to hear your Word taught. Uh, Please, Father, help us to have ears that hear. Please soften our hearts that we would joyfully receive this Word. And, Father, please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should that you would be honoured in the preaching and hearing of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You hypocrite. Uh, They were the words and reflections of a member of my growth group when I led on James 3 many years ago. Uh, To be honest, they were probably right. Uh, And this clear teaching on the tongue, that is our words and our speech, is a confronting passage for me, and I imagine for most Christians, uh, as someone who teaches God's word, as verse 1 addresses, but also as someone that's sarcastic by nature and prone to being loose with his words, uh, it's with a sense of uh, humility, self-awareness, and repentance uh, that I've prepared to preach on James 3 tonight. And I imagine it's not hard for most of us to think about the positive and negative effects That words have had in your life. Uh, For me, some of the best moments of my life have revolved around words, such as when Holly said, I do, as we made promises in marriage, or even just last Saturday when a midwife gave me uh, a little boy and said, here is your son, and I received this shriveled up kind of gross looking human. It's pretty magical. But also, words have actually been the cause and central in some of the worst and hardest parts of my life as well. When I was a somewhat stereotypical angry teenager, I would think of hurtful speech that would bring my mother to tears. Or it's the throwaway comment that has caused conflict in my marriage or friendships and has then required an apology. Words are central and powerful parts of our lives that can be both wonderful and devastating. And I doubt I need to persuade you of that. I think it's why many Christians find James's teaching on the tongue so gripping but also so confronting. Words or speaking have already uh, come up a few times in the letter of James. In chapter 1, he told them to be quick to listen to God's word but then slow to speak and slow to become angry. And then to finish chapter 1, he told them that pure and faultless religion that is acceptable to God includes speech. He says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. And so kind of having hinted along the way, James now comes to address the tongue in greater depth in chapter 3. And he begins with a warning to those who are, in a sense, in the speaking game. That is, teachers. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's the kind of verse you wish you read before going to Bible college or at least wish you understood it properly. Speaking is central to the role of being a teacher, obviously. But more than that, the words of a teacher are particularly public, influential and subject to scrutiny. But especially teachers were particularly important for the early church as they were the ones who would pass on the teaching of Jesus, the gospel. We have to remember that when James writes this letter, the gospels like Mark or Luke were not yet written down. And so teachers played a very central role in the life of a believer and the whole church as they passed on the saving message of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. We see this happening in 2 Timothy, where Paul says, "...the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others." So James warns that not many should be quick to rush into a teaching role because they will be judged more strictly. Now, it's important to clarify, James is not against teaching God's word but that they take it very seriously because God cares greatly about his people. So then those who teach, if they're going to exercise authority and influence over God's people, they must take that role seriously because God will call them to account, not just for what they've taught, but actually how they've lived as well. We see this in the Old Testament with Moses. Israel's great prophet is denied entry into the promised land for his disobedience as he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. In Jeremiah especially, we see God pronounce judgment time and time again on priests and prophets for their failure to lead and teach Israel faithfully and the resulting influence it had on his people. And notice that James actually says this is something they already know. That is, when they heard the gospel, they would have heard Jesus' words in Mark twelve. He says, "Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely." teaching god's word is serious business and not something to rush into and so this is a warning for not just neil but actually all who teach the bible whether it's sunday school kids club and youth group leaders or growth group leaders teaching the bible is a big deal because god cares and so make sure you're praying for those who teach It's actually a joy we have every week when we meet as a staff team. We pray that God's word, whether in church or in growth groups from the pulpit or in Sunday school, would be taught clearly and faithfully and would be the overflow of whole lives that are faithful to Jesus. So James warns, not many should rush into teaching God's word, firstly because it incurs a greater judgment from God But secondly, because the tongue is so difficult to control. Verse 2: We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Stumbling is a common term in the Bible for a spiritual failure. And James includes himself in this reality. All Christians struggle in different ways whether it's in doing what God says we shouldn't or failing to do what God says we should. But James moves from the broad to the specific. As he says, uh, there's a deliberate repetition and the ESV brings it out better, which is on the screen for you. He says, although we stumble in many ways, anyone who does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Uh, It's important to remember that when James talks about the idea of being perfect, he's not talking about necessarily someone that's uh, faultless and they get 10 out of 10 every time. Perfect is talking about Christian character. It's being like Jesus and hence it's often translated mature as it was back in James 1 verse 4. So he's not kind of making some throwaway line as if to say if you could control your tongue, you'd be a perfect person. No, he's saying that having control of our speech is something that we should aspire to as a clear evidence of our growth as Christians, our maturity in becoming like Jesus. And so verse 2 is doing two things. It's further adding a further clarity why we should be slow to presume a teaching role, but it's also making a general statement about speech that then takes us into the rest of the chapter as James addresses all of us who speak. And I think that's all of us. Uh, We all stumble in our speech, and it's actually a reality that I'm sure you are agreeing with. Would anyone here honestly claim that they've never slipped up in what they've said? A loose word or a joke that was inappropriate or hurtful to someone else? Words that they'd said or perhaps even written that they wished they could take back? We must take our speech very seriously. Did you hear it in the the reading from Jesus' own words in Matthew 12? He says, I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. So James moves from teachers specifically to speech more generally. And the verses that follow really are his way of helping us kind of get to know our own tongues so that we can take our words seriously. And he begins with two examples to show the power of the tongue. The first in verse 3 is that of a horse with all its might and strength is directed by its rider by a small bit placed into the mouth. The second in verse 4 is that of a ship. They're large. They can carry thousands of people but are steered by a small rudder wherever the captain wants the ship to go. And the point's pretty clear, right? The tongue is powerful in a way that is disproportionate to its size. James says it, verse 5, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Small in size, but great in influence, impact and consequences. I think these verses are really just explaining the logic of verse 2. If we have control of our tongue, which has so much power and influence in our lives, it's a clear indication for the rest of our lives as we continue to grow and mature as believers. And it's important to see that these examples of the horse and the ship can be either positive or negative. The tongue is powerful for great good. We can encourage, we can build up others with words. And Christians especially know how true this is. For it's as the good news about Jesus was spoken to us that we heard it, believed, accepted it, and changed from death to life. The tongue is powerful for good, but it also means the tongue has great power for destruction, which is what James makes very clear in verses 5 and 6. He gives a third illustration that again shows something small affecting something very big. He says, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a spark. Now, we Victorians should know this all too well farms, houses, hundreds of acres destroyed by fire that all began with a cigarette butt or an ember that was caught in the wind or just a fool with a barbecue. And James says, our words are just like that. Verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Do you feel the force of James's language? How important it is that we get it. Our speech and our tongues have capacity for evil like no other part of the body. It corrupts our whole body, our whole lives. His point is that the tongue is powerful and corrupting in any and every circumstance or stage of life. It's not something you just outgrow or move on from. And this is the case because the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Now, I think what he means is that when our speech is driven by sin, its power and work is hellish, destructive, like Satan himself, who will perish in hell. And I think this makes sense, right? Because it shouldn't surprise us that, in fact, the, the key way the devil works To deceive and tempt people is primarily through words. Jesus says in John 8 that the devil has no truth in him. Lies are his native language. It's Genesis 3 and the garden as he questions God's goodness and authority and the whole world is then led into a curse as Adam and Eve sin, believing his lies. James's language could not be clearer or stronger. Our tongues are powerful. But not just powerful, destructive. And again, I don't think I probably need to convince you of that from your experience. But I'm also sure that there's probably some of you here tonight who are thinking about certain people who have said something to you that was hurtful. And you're thinking, boy, I hope they are listening up right now. Maybe you're trying to make subtle eye contact with them just so they know that this is an issue they need to address. Now, that might be true, but James is being clear that the tongue is never just an issue for others. He made it clear in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways, especially speech, but then he makes it even clearer in verses 7 to 8 as he unpacks his third point about the tongue, and that is it is uncontrollable. Verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Human beings can and do tame animals. We exercise great power and control over the animal kingdom, such as pets or zoos, but no human has or can tame the tongue and so although we might like to think about all the people who have issues with their speech james is saying so do you your application tonight as you hear and obey god's word cannot simply be pray for andrew to improve his speech this is something we all need to wrestle with because the consequences are deadly Did you see, actually, in verse 6, James makes it clear that the tongue has power and influence, not just in our lives, verse 6, it corrupts our whole lives, but in verse 8, it's like a deadly poison as it influences others too. And again, I doubt you need convincing of that. You can probably think of it, marriages, friendships, jobs, reputations that have been built over years only to be lost or demeaning or hurtful comments. You can think of family members who haven't spoken in decades because of that word that was spoken at a Christmas party. Many of us can think of our own lives where we've had times there we wish we could take back those thoughtless comments and how different things would be if we just never said it. And it is remarkable, isn't it, how easy we can say that accidental word that cuts someone down, the sarcastic comment that hurts someone, but then seize up and become completely awkward when we have to apologise. Or even better, we have to do something great like encourage them. I find this so true for myself. One compliment or word of encouragement and I'll default to a joke to diffuse that very awkward situation. And yet I think I'm not alone in doing that. I think Winston Churchill summed it up beautifully when he said, We are masters of the unsaid words, but slaves of those we let slip out. So James says to us, know your tongue. The language and intensity of these verses is both clear and confronting. And yet it speaks to a reality I think we regularly experience. So ask, are you taking your tongue seriously? Do you pass off or justify your slander as harmless banter? Maybe you do that classic Aussie thing where you say a really harsh comment but in a sarcastic way so you get the self-satisfaction of rebuking someone but no accountability for doing it. And I think what James is saying is true about our words online. Do you take them seriously? what you post on social media or comment towards or about people. I think there's a common trend for us now to use emails or text messages to say hard things and avoid face-to-face communication. Digital forms of communication give us the false confidence to say whatever we want and think we don't have to be accountable for them. But not Christians. We know our words always matter and are accountable to God. James is writing to these Christians specifically for a very important matter. He doesn't just want them to understand their tongues and its destructive capabilities. And we know this, right? Verses 3 to 8, the language and the imagery he uses is not uniquely Christian. In fact, we find the same things, the same illustrations in Greek and Roman writings of James's time. And his point is actually that Christians must be different. He addresses head on the heart of the matter of the Christians he's writing to in verse 9. He wants to address their shameful inconsistency. He says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Words have a special place in Christianity. God is a speaking God and it's God's message of the gospel that is proclaimed and people hear it and are saved. But more than that, words are central to our praise of God. We've done it tonight. We prayed to our heavenly Father. We've sung his praises together. But that's not all James's readers are doing. They praise God with their tongue but then curse human beings. And this again raises the central issue of the letter of James. It's genuine faith, saving faith, authentic, undivided Christianity. The issue here is to profess to worship God, but then have words that are completely contradictory to what God values, what God says, and in fact, what God commands in his word. James says they're cursing human beings who have been made in God's likeness. It's a reference to Genesis 1 and the creation account. God makes the world by speaking. He orders all things, but then special focus is given to human beings. They're unique. They're valuable. They're very good, made in God's image and likeness. Humans have a special value and dignity before God and that must be reflected in the lives and then the words of those who worship God. And the situation that James is describing, I don't think it's that hard to imagine. Come to church, pray, sing, then slander or gossip about another Christian over supper. It's the Christian who goes to Growth Group and reads and shares happily, only to return home and use their words to cause hurt and conflict with a spouse or housemate as they gossip or make jokes at their expense. And it shows us that James doesn't have in mind the Christian who occasionally says the wrong thing or has had a slip of the tongue. The heart of the matter is not just their shameful inconsistency, the heart of the matter is their heart. Their words are exposing the kind of Christians they are. Verse 10, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. What follows in verses 11 to 12 make the point that words reflect the source. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is just saying what Jesus did, that our mouths are a barometer, that is a test or a gauge of our spirituality because words show who we are as they reveal our hearts. Matthew 12, Jesus says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What you say reveals who you are especially your relationship with God. And that's James's central issue in this section and the whole letter. The speech of the Christians he is writing to highlights their double-mindedness, their two-faced, worldly Christianity. And we see this, right? Because did you notice that in James 3, 1 to 12, there's no command. Verse 10 is the closest thing that we get And it highlights the point with a great understatement. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Notice James doesn't say anywhere, tame the tongue. In fact, he actually says in verse 8 that no human being can tame the tongue. But yet the point is that Christians not only should tame the tongue, they can i think james is hinting at that in verse 8 he says no human being can tame the tongue but god can remember back in chapter 1 i think it's the key thing to understand behind all of james's teaching he says that we if we're christian have new birth through god's word through the gospel we have new lives and new identities as god's people And the word that saved us, the gospel is then implanted in us and we must be quick to keep listening to it and we then must humbly accept what it says. And as we do that, God will continue to change and perfect us. Christians are new. We are different people that are now to have undivided lives of faith that must include our speech. So what does your speech say about you? Are the words that you speak, whether at work or at home, online or on the phone, with your spouse or with your mates, consistent with someone who knows Jesus? In essence, I think the passage is asking us if our speech is Christian. Do our words reflect someone who is saved by Jesus, who has new birth? and is living out that pure and faultless religion that James described back in chapter one by keeping a tight rein on our tongues. What would your friends, your family or colleagues know about you through your speech? As I reflected on that question, uh, I caught up with one of my non-Christian mates from high school. Uh, He came over to visit, we chatted for hours, and I reflected, what did he know about me? What did he learn about me? What do I value because of that conversation? And I came up with three things. I'm passionate about cricket, I value sleep, and I'm very passionate about tight-fitting nappies. But to my shame, he knows nothing of my love of God. My thankfulness for his kindness to me in Jesus. What about you? What would your friends say you value? What matters to you? Are your words the overflow of someone that has a heart so captivated by the God who saved you? that as people listen to you, there is no other explanation that you have a new heart. Now, for some of us, we hear James chapter 3 and just think this is a whole chapter about do-nots. I have to stop making those comments. I have to stop swearing or being so sarcastic and stop gossiping. And that's probably true. That would be helpful. But I think James has a bigger picture than simply do not. We see clearly in verses 9 to 12 that James has Christian speech in mind. That is, speech that's consistent with our salvation, consistent with God's word at work in us. God's word, that perfect law that brings freedom, is so much more than a list of things to avoid. Christians should have speech that reflects the character and values. Of the God who loved and saves us. And I think James gives us a bit of a taste of what uh, that speech looks like. Uh, In chapter 4, which I think is the continuation of this passage, he says, We use our tongue to repent. As we humble ourselves before God, as we submit to God, as we accept his rebuke, we use our tongue to repent. And I imagine for many of us, repentance is the necessary use of our tongues tonight. We need to acknowledge our failure to have consistent speech and turn to God and confess our sins. In James 5 verse 16, he'll tell us that we should confess our sins to each other. As we take the tongue seriously and as we have hearts that are grieved by our sins, we will confess our sins and seek forgiveness and, where necessary, seek reconciliation. There are few things that destroy Christian congregations more than the tongue and an unwillingness to acknowledge our wrongs and reconcile. Maybe you need to do that tonight. Talk to God. Talk to your Christian brother or sister. Repent and seek forgiveness. And as James finishes in in chapter 5 verse 19, he says we should have a genuine concern for each other that will primarily take place with words. Verse 19, he says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. As a Christian community, we should be having conversations that spur each other on, and this will include hard conversations if we see another Christian walking away from the truth. Love speaks. But to be honest, these conversations are never going to happen. Hard conversations about the gospel will never happen if we aren't regularly talking about Jesus already. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that Christians mature and grow in a community as we speak the truth in love to one another. And the truth he's talking about there, it's the gospel, it's the truth about Jesus. As we meet together, we should remind each other of reality in the gospel. Whether it's church, growth group, or just coffee with another Christian, it's an opportunity to encourage and be encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus. And I think we need to hear this call and challenge tonight because I think we are excellent at doing the exact opposite. We sing, we pray, we hear a talk from God's word and then immediately turn to each other and talk about anything other than Jesus. What are you talking about? What is your speech saying about you? Now, it's important to clarify that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the message of James 3 is not try hard to improve your speech or stop swearing. To simply try to improve your talk would be like taping oranges to an apple tree. It'll never change the tree itself. Our words are the overflow of our hearts. And so the question for you then is how is your heart? Is your heart at peace with the God who made you? Have you encountered the immeasurable love of God poured out for you in his son who hung on a cross so that you could be forgiven and welcomed? Are you right with Jesus by accepting his saving work on the cross? And if you aren't tonight, why aren't you? But for those of us who do know and trust in Jesus, who have experienced the new birth through the gospel, our call is to have consistent speech with a changed heart. What we've covered tonight is really just a taste of what Christian speech should look like. As we listen to God's word, we will hear a call to evangelism, encouragement, rebuke, teaching, singing, praying, and so much more. And there are actually a whole lot of verses in your outline that you can look up. But James leaves us with the key key question of, are your words reflective of a complete transformation in your heart? in your life, because you confess Jesus as Lord. We must keep coming back to God's implanted word, the gospel. Not simply to be told what kind of speech to have, but to let our hearts be captivated by the glory of God in the face of Christ. As we keep looking to our Saviour who hung on a cross, as we see God's love and mercy meet his utter anger at our sin, including sins of the tongue, we see how clearly and shamefully wrong it is to be saved and loved by him and have speech that is then inconsistent with who he is, what he has done, what he says to us, and who he has made us to be. Keep coming back to the gospel that saved you. Be quick to listen so that you can delight in how God has treated you so that your your heart might overflow with Christian speech. Let's pray and ask God to do that for us. And I'm going to pray using the language of Psalm 141 and Ephesians 1. Let's pray. Father, we confess tonight that both accidentally and deliberately we have used our tongue for evil and that we have had shamefully inconsistent speech. Father, please forgive us and draw us back again to see and savour Christ. Please set a guard over our mouths, Lord, and keep watch over the door of our lips. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know you better. Open the eyes of our heart that we would know the riches of the hope to which we have been called, that our speech would honour and point to Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.